You're listening to audio from Holy Cross Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you'd like to check out more resources or learn more about our ministry, please visit holycrosstucson.com. Let's continue in our series. Uh, kind of been looking at passages in the book of Romans on hope and in our Advent season. So Romans chapter 5, verse 1 to 5 this morning. Therefore, since we've been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, who has been given to us. This is God's word. Hope is such an important and dynamic reality in our life. Um, I'm sure that you're familiar with this game. Kids play it a lot, uh, Two Truths and a Lie. And uh, if not, you know, here are the basic rules. You give people three pieces of information about yourself. Two of them are true, and one of them is not true. And they're supposed to figure out which of those things, uh, which of that thing is, is, is untrue. Okay, I'll go first. I'm the middle of seven children. I ranked in high school in the top 25 in the state in the national Spanish exam. And I have never had chicken pox. Any guesses? No. <clears throat> family members are not allowed to play. No, your family? No, no, no family. You got a guess? Spanish. No, in fact, I ranked the 21st in the state in the national Spanish exam. Now, I will tell you, the state was Kentucky, and so there were, <clears throat> there were 26 people who actually took the test. So, but yeah, pretty good. So, yeah. Esta la verdad. Uh, I have had chicken pox, yes. So that, that's the lie. Um, I have had chicken pox, and so, because uh, I was alive before they vaccinated for that. Um, so that's how the game goes. Now, why do I tell you that? That's fun. But I tell you that because looking at this passage, Paul seems to, fe- seems to be playing this game. It feels like he's playing this game. He's telling us, I'm going to give you three, three pieces of information that are wonderful, beautiful benefits of justification, of being in a relationship with God. First one, peace with God and forgiveness of sin. Second one, Hope for future glory. Third one, suffering. Okay, feels like he's playing a game. Two truths and a lie. Any guesses on which one feels like the lie? Can you read those back to me again? What are you talking about? And he's so excited about, here is the, here are the blessing of relationship with God. And, and we usually focus on those first two, right? Forgiveness of sins, and one day Jesus is coming back to make it all better. But what about the present? What about the here and now? What hope do we have for right now? And Paul gives us good information. He says, your suffering produces hope in the here and now. And this is a wonderful and beautiful blessing. You know, the first, this this part doesn't sound like a truth. The claim that suffering, it produces hope, that suffering produces, is God's um, instrument of our growth. 
But hope in here, hope in this part of our life, in the present and here and now, in all the weariness, in all the fatigue, in the frustration, it is here that hope is so dynamic, that is so powerful. It makes all the difference in our lives. It does wonderful and beautiful work in our lives. You know, hope is good when, when things are going well in celebration and in joy. Uh, hope, hope that we have forgiveness from our past sins and hope for future glory with God one day, forever in his eternal kingdom, are good things. But there is hope also in the sorrow, in the suffering, in the pain. And we're missing something if we don't talk about that. We're missing something if we take that part out of our relationship with God. If you're like me, at times we look at our relationship with God and the whole economy of it, and we think, what is good about being a Christian? Well, my sins are forgiven, and one day God will make this all go away. One day I'll be with him forever, eternal life. There's much more. Because this is where we live. We live in in today. Biblical hope is that desire for some blessing and the conviction that we will obtain it. Hope has been an anchor for God's people forever. Um, it, is, uh, it's, it is anchored in the birth of Jesus Christ and the promised rescuer of God's people to come and to rescue us, to save us. And when Jesus was born, in that, that advent of, that, of the Christ child, the birth of Jesus, it set in motion God's plan to ambush sin and death itself and usher in this new kingdom, this new relationship with his people to reconcile us to God, to forgive us our sins, to give us a hope that is imperishable and to draw us closer to himself even in the midst of pain. And this is the promise of God. This is the hope of Christmas. It's not something that exists only for our past sins and it's not something that we only just live with, in, with our eyes on the future hope of, it, of pain being gone. Hope is something we must be transformed by in our daily lives. It impacts how we live in the here and now. And so here's what we learned from this passage this, passage this morning. We're going to see the surprise of hope, where we see the path to hope, and then the ultimate result of hope. What's the surprise of hope? We kind of touched on this already. The passage is not two truths in a lie. In fact, it's, it's three truths and three affirmations that hope is not only for past sins and future glory, but it's for our pain. It is for our today. And this is the great surprise of hope. The surprise is that real biblical hope does not diminish suffering in our lives but our hope is actually enhanced by our suffering. We're so often confused when trouble comes into our world and into our life. It is true to say that it shouldn't be this way. God did not design his creation this way. It was actually designed for good and for our flourishing. But when sin came into creation, it, it destroyed our relationship with God, with one another, with ourself, with creation, Everything was broken and cursed. We often are so confused when trouble comes to godly people. I've, I've sat down with, with many of God's people who have suffered, and I often hear the phrase, I don't understand why God would do this. Why would God allow this to happen to this person who loves him? 
I am confused why God isn't giving clearer answers or quicker answers to my, to my pain and to my struggle. We wrongly assume that, that God leads his people in this life, in the here and now, always to greener pastures. We, we wrongly assume that God leads his sheep always along still waters. For you often lead us along broken paths, choppy waters, desert fields. While this is our ultimate destination, right? Greener pastures and still waters and peace with God and the fullness of joy, it's not our present reality. And we tend to believe that true biblical contentment in life can only happen when those greener pastures and those still waters are a present reality. That we think that's what it means to be at peace with God. That's what it means to be loved by God. That's what it means to be uh, whole. That's when life is going good. But our passage directs us to a different promise and a surprising feature of what it means to hope in God. And what this means is profoundly this, that your present pain is not an obstruction to God's purpose, but the accelerant to God's purpose in your life. And that surprises me. And maybe that surprises you. Frustrates me. Bothers me, yeah. But this is the truth. This is what God does. God seems to do his best work in our pain. He seems to do his best work in our suffering, when we are hurting, when we are hopeless, when we are, when we are admitting that there's nothing within ourselves that, that, can, that can save us. We see pain as an evidence that God, God's hope has been lost. But in reality, God can show us that our hope does not have to be contingent on the absence of suffering, but it can be anchored in something far greater. It can be anchored in God's ever-present help in the midst of our suffering, his promises that are eternal, his love that is boundless and everlasting. You and I have known sleepless nights. You and I have known waves of grief. You and I have known angst and a heart that is tired and weary and just plain done. You and I have known that. It's in the, it is in the midst of these circumstances, just like this, that Jesus was born. And God says, just at the right time, God sent his son. What was that right time? Was it during a time of prosperity and flourishing? The opposite. It was a time of chaos. There was over 400 years of silence from God to his people. It was like the dark ages of, 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 of faith in God. God's people lived in a godless culture. And in the midst of it all, not, not in exception to it all, but in the midst of it all, the good news was proclaimed to the world for all those who were tired, for all those who were weary, for all those who were just sick of the pain of life. He didn't wait for it to go away. He brought it in the midst of it. And heavens opened up and the angels proclaimed this, this hymn of praise and celebration to the shepherds who were in the fields, tired and cold, laying on the ground. And he says, I bring you good news of great joy. For unto you today, a child is born, a savior, Jesus Christ. This is the good news in the midst of our pain. So the coming of Christ awakens our hope, 
awakens our hope in the midst of suffering today just as much as it did for over 2,000 years ago when they were longing for hope, longing to see God, longing for an answer. And God awakens the hope, and that's the surprise for us, is that we think that God's, the hope will come in the midst of our circumstances changing. But the hope comes in the midst of our suffering and God's ever-present love in the midst of that. But here's the path to hope. Then Paul goes on to show us like the sequence of how hope is, is brought about in our life. We see a path. Do you notice this path, this chain reaction of, uh, that suffering brings about in verse 3 and 4? He says, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope doesn't disappoint, right? Suffering produces endurance. Co- going through difficult seasons in our life causes us to focus, causes us to focus. It causes us to realize things that we were hoping in and trusting in that were incapable of fulfilling our deepest needs and longings. Hope allows us to kind of clear things off the plate that weren't working and to focus on what really matters. And that's what's being communicated here. It helps us, helps us focus so that we're not distracted. Because that's something that this world can do is distract us. You notice we can't learn hope. We can't learn how to hope without a challenge to it. Mentioned that last week, like no one hopes for things that are obvious. Really hope the sun comes up tomorrow. Like we know that it will, right? I mean, from, from years and years of like history, we know. We can predict it down to the second. We know when the sun rises. We know when it sets. What do we hope for? We hope for the things that there's a challenge to. We hope for the things that seems like there's evidence against it actually happening. Have you noticed that you can't learn patience without interruptions? How do you learn patience? Are you growing in patience when everyone says, oh, I'm sorry, you first, you know? No, you, you learn when there's interruptions. You learn when there's chaos. You learn when there's, where there's that, that contradiction and oppression. Have you noticed that you can't learn forgiveness without being offended? We can't learn how to focus on the promise of God without being distracted in this world. Your distractions, your pain, your suffering, these are not obstructions to what God wants to do with you. They are the accelerant. They are not the hindrance to what God wants to do to you. They are the vehicle. He is is using our suffering to aid us in focusing on him. And that's exactly what he intends to do. Suffering helps us realign our priorities. It wakes us up from a, a hope of, that has become possibly lazy. We've forgotten God. We've forgotten what it looks like to pursue him, to love him, to know him, to anchor our trust in him. It wakes us up from you know, drifting, uh, from trusting in God, to, drift, uh, to trusting in other people, to trusting in ourselves, to trusting in our accomplishments and our character. We know that those things can't satisfy. For a time, our, our spouse may be, treat us better. Our kids may be more obedient. Our, our, our bosses may treat us better. And those things are good for the moment and for the season. But, but we always realize that that's not the real answer. We always realize that that can't be where we anchor our hope. This kind of hope in God, is, is, it's not the same kind of hope of like, it's not the same thing as like gritting our teeth and hoping it gets better. So when Paul says that suffering produces endurance, he is not saying you just got to get through it. 
You just got to bear down and just power through. What he's inviting us into is to process our pain. To process our pain in such a way that reveals it, reveals where we've misplaced our hope, revealing where we've put our priorities, revealing where we have trusted and found our peace that in things and people that can never deliver. God's wisdom is saying, don't just ignore the pain and just grit your teeth and get through it. Sit there. And that's the most painful thing to do in the midst of pain is to be aware of it. It's really hard. That's the most painful thing is when you're hurting is to sit and say, I'm hurting. What does that mean? I'm hurting. How am I reacting to my pain? How am I treating others because of my pain? Am I going to God with my pain? Am I going to others with my pain? Where's my focus? And this focus, this endurance, in this chain reaction, endurance then produces character. Character means to be tested and to prevail. God uses suffering to produce a deepness, a a genuineness in our relationship with him that we can't get any other way. Suffering and when we, when we process that pain and when we endure in that pain and focus our faith on God, it builds a, a fastness in our character, a tested value in our character, a deepness that we can't get just by learning about it. We have to go through it. Consider this, a, a food scientist who has never tasted honey can tell you what honey is can tell you how it's made, can tell you the chemical composition of it, can tell you how it transfers information from your tongue to your brain to tell you that it's delicious and sweet. But a child who knows what honey tastes like knows far more about honey than that scientist who has never tasted it. We can know so much about God. We can know about suffering. We can know about how it produces character. But until we actually walk that suffering with God, until we actually place our hope in him, until we actually battle through that, we'll never really have that deep experience of hope. What we're talking about here is the difference between knowing and experiencing. Knowing God and experiencing God. Knowing his love, experiencing his love. Knowing hope, intellectually, and actually experiencing hope to a deeper level that goes so deep into our heart. You know, you may be the kind of person that, who knows the grace of God, but never truly experienced it in a way that takes your, kind of a take your breath away kind of experience. This amazement level of like, I cannot believe how, how good God is. I can't believe how sure and, and, and faithful and kind God is. I knew he was love, but now I know that he loves me and I'm going to be okay. You may know about the birth of Christ, but have you ever stood in the awe of his presence knowing that God became a man so that he could be with us and in being with us that he would never be taken away from us, that you are never alone. No matter what you are going through, no matter what pain, what suffering, you will never face it alone. Have you stood in the awe of that reality? You may be able to recite the differences between religion A and religion B, but you've never had to take it on the chin, so to speak, for Jesus. 
You've never had to lose because of your faith. You've never had to suffer as a result of trusting in God instead of trusting in the world. When we trust in God in the midst of suffering, what we know about God in the head will travel that 18 inches to our heart and produce in us a character that's been tested and prevails. And this is character. This is spiritual maturity that only comes through these trials, that only comes through God walking with us through these tough times. And you know what's interesting? It's those tough times we keep praying that God would take away. And when we're asking that, we're asking God to short circuit his work in our life. I hate saying that. <laughs> I really do. And I'm, and I'm even thinking, I'm, don't say that. Don't say that. I'm like, I gotta say it. That's what God says. Character, though, produces hope. This is a strong confidence and assurance of the peace of God, his boundless care for you and future glory with you. This is what hope is. So Paul is saying, this is what happens. You know, suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope doesn't disappoint. Hope doesn't put us to shame. It is a hope that's deep down. It's a radical conviction. It believes that no matter what is happening around you or in you, you will be okay. That's the kind of hope. Because what God has done is he removes every rival and competing hope, and he's the only one left. What God does in our suffering is he dismantles every source of encouragement and, and, and peace that we have trusted in in this world so that he's the only one left and the only one capable of actually helping us. And we see that clearly and we place our hope in him through a process of elimination by his mercy to do that. And then we realize for the first time, we're gonna be okay. The other people and things we've put our hope in, he's shown us that they can never deliver on what they promise. Amazing thing often happens when God's people suffer, and you've probably seen it. You've maybe even seen it in yourself if you had to endure suffering. They say when they suffer, they feel more of God's love and more of God's presence in the midst of their suffering. Have you ever heard that? Why? What a strange thing. You've heard people say, I would never wish this on my worst enemy, but I would never take it away, what God did through it in my life. Why is that? It's answered here in this passage because it's through suffering that we focus. It is through suffering we endure and our character is built. It is through suffering that the love of God anchors deep in our hearts and we become convinced of it to the point we say ridiculous things like, I'm hurting so bad, but I'm certain I'm okay. And the world looks at that and is so confused. The world looks at that and they are confused by it. This is what hope looks like. Hope, biblical hope. There is a hope in this world and then there is a hope in God and they are nothing alike. This is what it means to hope that doesn't put us to shame. That you will never be disappointed in trusting in God. You will never lose. This is the result of hope looking at this final 
string in this beautiful chain. I don't want to glamorize you know, pain or suffering as if to say that, it's, that pain and suffering is something that we should categorize as virtuous. Right, because I think a lot of this talk, it could kind of sound like we should then celebrate suffering and celebrate pain. Um, but I want you to know that you and I do not need to be glad for our suffering. We don't need to be joyful for our suffering. God hates pain, and he hates suffering, and he hates trouble in this life, and so should we. It's the very reason he came. He sent his son to die for us because he hates pain. And he hates suffering. And God is angry at what grieves you. There's a difference between joy of suffering and joy in our suffering. Hope in the promise of God recognizes that we will never be let down. What does it mean to hope that doesn't put us to shame? Because this is a really, a really beautiful phrase. It means that no one who puts their hope in Christ will ever, ever ever regret it. It's a beautiful promise. No one gets to his or her final days and says, I trusted in God too much. Right? No one ever gets to the end of their days and says, I gave too much of my heart and my life into the hands of God. No one says that, but we do say a lot, I gave too much of my heart away to my work. I gave too much of my heart to this person. I gave too much of my life to this worldly passion that never delivered on what it said it would deliver on. I was too distracted. I was too unfocused. I was too double-minded. I was too wrapped up in the snares of this world and too confused. And now I realize that God was my answer and I wasted so much time. There's nothing in this world that can deliver on the claim, put your life in my hands and you will never be sorry. Nothing in this world can ever deliver on that. Put Put your life in my hands and you'll never be sorry. But that's exactly what God promises. Put your life in my hands and you will never, ever be put to shame. Never be disappointed. Advent is a time of focus. It's a time of endurance. It's a time of growing in maturity. This is a time we get to reflect for for a few weeks, particularly on, on this, focusing on the hope that we have to grow in our maturity, where we allow our circumstances and the struggles of our life to drive us to the one and only place that we can find real hope into God's arms, to God himself. Because a lot of times during Advent and the Christmas season, there's an, it feels like an invitation to ignore your pain and to focus on joy. This is a happy time. I was at a Christmas party last night and it was packed and there's a lot of people there and this daughter, probably 10, 11, 12 years old, comes up to her mom and is crowded and I was right there and she goes, why are you so mad at me, mom? And the mom was like, you know, it's a happy time. We're okay. Everything's fine. And, and she was like, it was super embarrassing, I think, for the mother, but totally understood. And it's like, we, we get in these contexts, especially around this time of the year where it's like, it's Christmas and we're going to be happy. And if you're not, you're not trusting in God enough. That's not what this season's about. This season is, is about if, like I said at the beginning, if you don't have a smile to put on, then you're a great candidate. You're a great candidate for the mercy of God. Because the absence of suffering is not, it's not a prerequisite 
it, in fact, it, it, it's the pathway. It, suffering is the path. Suffering is the way that God works in our life. Um, suffering drives us further f- to God. But what often happens in our suffering is suffering drives us further away from God. Suffering makes us feel like God has abandoned us. We misunderstand our suffering for his lack of care. Um, We misunderstand pain in life as God's absence. But this is a moment in our pain that he's never been closer. Christmas assures us of that. His life, his perfect death in our place, his resurrection, the indwelling Holy Spirit is a guarantee that all of that is true. It's in these moments of pain that God's drawing you closer to himself. It's not a moment where he is confusing you of his care. I'm going to just go ahead and assume that some of you need to hear that this morning because you're human and life is hard. And you're in the midst of some kind of pain. You're in the midst of some kind of suffering. But maybe you're skeptical. And so to the skeptic, how do we know How do we know? For the skeptic in us all, how do we know that this promise that will never be put to shame is actually something we can anchor our whole hope in? Because here's what God's word says in verse five. Because, I'm glad you asked because he answers it. Because, he says because. God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. This is true for every relationship. Trust is important for every single relationship. A spouse that doesn't trust their spouse is not a stable relationship. This goes for coworkers and friends, family members, any relationship that you desire to be emotionally healthy. You need to have confidence. You need to have trust. And so trust in, God's, in God brings confidence. And Paul here in chapter five spells out, okay, you want trust, you want evidence, here it is. First, God says it and his word carries more weight than anything else. But assuming that that's not enough for you, he says, second, he gives you the Holy Spirit into our hearts as a guarantee of future and full payment forever. So this is like a, it's a, it's quite a guarantee. You know, all your money, do you remember paper money? Do you remember that? I know they print a lot of it, but we don't always carry it around. And so It says promissory note, so it says note on there. You know what that means? It's a promise from the Federal Reserve that anyone who holds that note can use that for all debts, public and private, right? And exchange it for goods. It's not, that that doesn't have value, it's what it represents. The Holy Spirit acts in a similar way. God says, I will deposit in you my, the Holy Spirit, my very presence with you that will never be taken away as a guarantee that whoever possesses this Holy Spirit, the God himself indwelling in you, God will complete, he will bring you to himself, he will return for you, and he will give you full and lasting joy forever. It's quite a guarantee. If you know that God loves you, if he has changed your affections in your heart, if he's rescued you, if you believe in Jesus and you believe, you've admitted that you have sinned against God and you've cried out for his mercy, he has poured out his Holy Spirit in your life. If you desire to love him more, to know him more, to trust him more, these affections have been given to you because of the Holy Spirit in your life. You do not need to worry about how things end up. 
You do not need to be afraid. You do not need to be insecure about God's promises, but you can claim them as certain realities because the the Holy Spirit is a guarantee of the full blessing of God for our past, present, and future needs. This is a great guarantee, but then there's this final basis of our hope. It's the manger and the cross. God's word desires for us, why should we hope? We should look at Christ himself. Christmas reminds us that hopelessness is the only doorway to hope. Christ was born hopeless as a child, fully dependent on his mother and father. He was born naked and poor and homeless. He, his life was marked by grief, and on the cross he died uh, the worst way you could die, as a sinner uh, at the hands of the most brutal um, nation that perfected torture. They perfected the way to humiliate a person and take their dignity and life from them that was long and suffering. If God did not spare his own son, who he loves so much from suffering, then he must know something about grief and suffering that you and I need to learn. Pain is not the absence. Suffering is not the absence of God's love. Your present pain is not an obstruction to his purposes, but the accelerant to God's purposes in your life. And nothing, not even death itself, can keep you from his love. Say, God, why are you causing me to suffer? It feels like you don't love me, but look at Jesus. We are to look at the manger in his humiliation, coming into this world and becoming like us, leaving a place of glory, a life of suffering, and dying. He died, he suffered, he was rejected and abandoned. He was alienated so that we could be accepted. He was punished so that we could be pardoned. He was rejected so we could be adopted. He was ridiculed so that we could hear the affection of God to us. I've heard it said that God turned his back on Jesus on the cross so that we would never see the back of God's head ever again. He turned away from Christ so that he would never turn away from us and walk away. He's always with us. He's always before us. He's always within us. But we must admit something. We must admit that not just wrong behavior, we must admit wrong belief and thinking that we could ever hope without him, that we could ever place our hope in this life in anything with, uh, other than him, that we could ever be okay without him. We have to admit that we can't escape our hopelessness if we ever only trust in ourselves. And we have to admit that Jesus alone stands in our place in the judgment of God to die for our sins as our only source of joy and hope. In this life and in the next. You not only does Jesus die for us, he refreshes us. Jesus didn't come to die just to forgive our sins and bring us to heaven to be with him. He came to refresh us. He came to give us the life of peace, the life of hope in the midst of our sorrows. So here, during this second week of Advent, here's the the opportunity you have, that we have. When the pain of this world and the circumstances of your life, big or small, are brought to mind, instead of 
gritting your teeth, instead of falling into despair, let it be an opportunity to focus on how that pain can drive you deeper to a place of real hope in Christ who loves you, who gave himself for you, who will never leave you, and one day will come back for you.